0: Thank you Pastor Meredith. Morning family. How you doing? Doing okay? If you and I haven't met before, my name is Ben Teefy. It's my joy to be the lead pastor of this great church and uh, we are in an incredible time of year. Thank you Danielle, that's my wife. Um, She's awesome. We're in a great time of year, aren't we? Christmas time. Who loves a bit of Christmas time? You know, there's a foolishness out there that you hear sometimes from the kind of oddball sector of the Christian church. The Christian church has plenty of oddball sectors. Uh, And one of those is the groups that say you shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it comes from a pagan festival. I just want us to marinate in the sheer stupidity of such a dumb statement for a second. You know what the early Christians did? They said, why would we let the world celebrate a pagan festival when what we can do is give them a brand new lens through which to see reality, which is the life-changing, history-altering revolution of Jesus coming into planet Earth? So why on earth would anybody utter such foolish words that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas? Definitely not thinking Christianly. Which brings is it is that hey, I just want to give you advance warning. We're doing group therapy today, all right? <laughs> I got a bunch of stuff to get off my chest. Some of it's from God's word, another is just from my pain. Okay, but we're we're gonna journey together. We're gonna journey together. This idea of the viewing lens of Jesus for Christmas brings me to the point of our series that we are in at the moment, Mighty Mary. And we are concentrating on Luke chapter one, Mary's amazing song, the first ever Christmas carol, the first ever Christian hymn, the first recorded response of somebody to what God is doing in the coming of Jesus himself. And it's Mary and she's carrying Jesus and she's been given the good news by the angel of this amazing thing that his kingdom will know no end and the government will be upon his shoulders. It's life-changing, friends, if you get wrapped up in it. Come on. Sometimes I think we've got to shake ourselves and say, do you remember what it's like to be without Jesus in the world? Well, you probably don't remember what the world's like, but you know what your world was like. Yeah. I know what my world was like without Jesus. And I'm telling you now, man, since Jesus, every day is Christmas. I want to be up there with Maddie doing happy holly jolly. But ba- every time the creative team do the... Auditions, they they wait till I'm out of town before they do those auditions, so I am yet to get my Guernsey. And Mary sings a song. You know, this passage of Scripture is known statistically and sociologically in the church as one of the most neglected passages of Scripture. I don't know your engagement with it. It's like, why are we spending so much time on this? Exactly. It hardly gets read. It hardly gets studied. It hardly gets preached about. It hardly gets taught on. There's a bunch of hypotheses for why that could be. One is, well, these are the longest words of a woman in Scripture. And I know traditionally, you know, faith groups, they haven't exactly been enthralled about what women have to say. So who wants to hear the words from a woman? Let's get to like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And those are the long. And and, and then there's the other thing that in the Protestant sector, we're a little bit ambiguous about that whole Mary worshipping thing. You know what I'm saying? So we just want to make sure we stay right away from that, don't we? So we tend to sort of flick to other passages of Scripture. But this thing, this great hymn, this magnificent the first ever Christian hymn, the first ever Christian carol, it's famous and it's famous and it has gotten inside of people and inspired new ways of seeing the world and new ways of describing the realities and the embrace of what God is doing in human history. Because Mary offers us something. And I've I got a big job today to try to get out of my heart ugh, to you. And I don't think my preaching capacity is up to the job, to be honest. So let's just pray father, please help us. I pray we we, we would leave here soaked in your word and your vision of living for us. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit just to transcend my weakness as a human communicator and let your word echo in our hearts today, father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Mary offers us something, friends, and Luke offers us something in his recording of what he gives us that Mary said. The beginning of Luke opens with him saying that Luke undertook a systematic study consulting all of the eyewitnesses about what happened in the life of Jesus. And he says he then writes to his, his literary sponsor, Theophilus. He, he writes to him saying, I've given you this orderly account so that you would know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. And therefore Luke unfolds thought by thought the story of the significance of the life and the death and the ministry of Jesus and the amazing revolution of Jesus that it was. And if you read Luke's gospel, Jesus touches in dynamic ways every sector of society from the richest and most powerful to the poor and the most insignificant and the vulnerable. And Luke gives us a systematic thought, and that's why we can't skip over what Mary says to us. And, and this amazing hymn that kind of, it's the point of, of embarkation where, 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 where we begin our journey with Jesus is by being marinated and soaked in Mary's response to what it is to have Jesus in her. She responds as a prophet. She responds as a prophetess. She responds with the words of the prophet. She gives you this song. And if you read the song, the song is soaked in scripture. It is a patchwork quilt of cutting and pasting and ideas and all the biggest themes from the Hebrew Bible. She comes to us with the words of the prophets and the words of the Psalms and the words of the prophet. But she does something more because what you have to do when you're reading Mary is you have to not just read her words, but you have to see her vision. And the vision came to her from the reality of the angel's announcement that here comes King Jesus. Here comes the one that all of the Old Testaments had had promised that God would resolve the biggest problems in history and that God would shine light on the darkest patches of the cosmos. And Mary responds to what is in her and she engages something that you and I are invited into. We're invited into it. If you know anything about God, you know that God is always invitational. He will never coerce you. And so you're invited into it and you can choose, will I respond to and live into the invitation that God has? Or will I remain a distant spectator from what God has? This thing was wonderfully summed up by a theologian called Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann's not a standard theologian. He grew up in the home of a bricklayer and he became a bricklayer. He didn't become a theologian until later in life, so he's a wonderful theologian to read because he's got like the trades theological mind. you know what I'm saying? Maybe you don't. <laughs> you haven't been traumatised enough to study Old Testament scholars. Walter Brueggemann says that God's movement in history... At every point, history is redeemed and the narrative sweep of history is redeemed when people coming close to God embrace this thing that God invites us into. And here's what the thing is in in Walter Brueggemann's words. It's called the prophetic imagination. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? You know, you and I live in, in a world that captivates our imagination, captivates our imagination that's why no matter who you are in this room whether you're here in church pretending everything's fine because you feel pressure to just pretend or whether you would be here in humility saying man I've got some stuff going on and I need the help of God whichever scale you are the truth is here's something that's true about every one of us in the room and that is this there is stuff you know you shouldn't think about but you can't help it and you tell yourself you're not going to but you do And for some of us extreme, like my background in drugs and alcohol, I'm sure you've heard so much about that. And and if you haven't heard about it, I've got a background. And depression and trauma. And and, and so, so my training captivated my imagination. So my background in violence and trauma, by the time I went to my workplace, I worked for a violent, abusive boss, actually. And he would constantly verbally abuse me. And do you know what would happen when he did that? I would freeze. And he would think I was listening, but I was frozen in time because I didn't know. See, I had, from a young age, learned not fight, not flight. I learned to freeze. And I just let whatever happened to me. And so many times throughout my life, things transpired in my life, and I just froze, and I allowed them to happen. And you know, then you get to your 20s, and every time you look in the mirror, you're a patchwork quilt of all of the times you froze in life. What about you? Maybe you freeze, but maybe you fight and maybe you're a patchwork quilt of every fight you've ever had. Maybe you flee and your life is a patchwork quilt of every flight you've ever made. How we respond. And our imaginations get captured from a very young age by the world that we live in. And then all of our reactions, it's like it gives us a lens through which to see reality. And now everything I see is marked by my biography and my experiences, isn't it? And our world capitalizes on this, which is why you and I have so much trouble not thinking the things that we think and then think, not think, no, thinking about the things we want to not think and then not thinking the things we want to think. And it's so difficult, even I am confused about it. And why do we do that? We do it because this world, from the minute you came into it, it shapes and cultivates your imagery. It shapes and cultivates your brain and your heart and your mind. It shapes and cultivates your soul so that you end up being a person who does not think about the things they want to think about but sometimes thinks about the things they want to think about but often thinks about things they don't want to think about. Don't even think about it. <laughs> it's called metacognition, thinking about your thinking. Hang on, my, my legs have gone numb, I'm just doing that. How about you? Our imaginations are captured and so then... What happens is our responses to the world, our responses to ourselves, our responses to others are predetermined and pre-shaped by what we already carry inside of us. So actually, what, what, what happens to me is not the most important thing, but what I think about what happens to me is the most important thing. And same with you, because it's like our imaginations are captured from when we're young. The Israelites show this in the story. Do you remember when God delivers the Israelites from the nation of Egypt through amazing feats of overthrowing every spiritual power of Egypt? That's what all those judgments were. Each divinity worshipped in Egypt was systematically overthrown. The sun, the Nile, the crops, the fly god, systematically overthrown by the sovereignty of Yahweh. And the Israelites began to have their eyes open. Wow, you mean Pharaoh's not the only one that rules the universe? They lived in a world where Pharaoh had captured their imagination. You mean Pharaoh's not in charge? No, because he's letting his people go. And they go out into the wilderness, and it's amazing. And you would think they go out and go, wow, we now see the world a totally different way. Pharaoh's not in charge. Ra is not in charge. The Egyptian gods and wizards and sources, they're not in charge. We live in a different world. as freedom. We're no longer slaves. You would think that they would have gone out into that desert seeing everything differently, right? But you're wrong. Because their whole life, their imagination had been captured by Egypt, and so they go out into the desert and they say, well, you know, gods live in postcodes in the ancient world. So there's the sun god and the, the, the Nile god and the crocodile god and the fly god. But now we're here and we're across the Red Sea now. So we're, we're in Canaanite territory. And in Canaanite territory, the god that's in charge is the bull god. So if we want to survive here in Canaanite territory, we better worship the bull god. And so do you know what the Israelites did? Just like, it's like moments after God delivers them from the Israelite, from the Egypts, e- Egyptians. Egyptians. <laughs> This is why I told you I had to pray about my capacity. Moments after, Moses is up the mountain in the fire and smoke of God, where God with his own hand is writing the Ten Commandments on a stone tablet. And the Israelites are down there going, hey, if we all collect jewelry, we can make ourselves a golden calf and worship it. And that's what they do. And then Moses comes out, and Moses is so furious. He's like, guys, I can't believe I like, turned my back for one second. Well, it's like 40 days, but that's like nothing in the grand scheme of history. And, and I turned my back for one second, and what do you do? They do what their captured imagination had taught them to do. Well, you're in Canaan, and the gods are all bound by postcode. So, so, so now in Canaan, the god we worship better be the Canaanite god. And they built a bull like the gods all over the Canaanite area were shaped. Now, here's what's scary. Are you ready for it? Do you know what they called that bull? They gather around in the, in the King James says, and they rose up to play. It means they did all sorts of naughty stuff. They worshiped that golden calf, and they took up offerings, and they said, Look at the great things Yahweh is doing. They thought the bull was God which is a bunch of bull. <laughs> you and I are like that. man. Our imaginations are captivated by the culture that we are part of. It doesn't matter what culture you're from here. We, we are from all sorts of cultures in this room. And your biggest challenges to faith and my biggest challenge to faith is the bits that I don't see about myself, where my thinking and where my imagination has been captivated by this world. And so now everything I see and everything I say and everything I do and everything I respond is in danger of being filtered through an imagination that is captive to the powers in this world and not truly free. Like the Egyptians who didn't even know that the God of the universe who cannot be made with human hands, they said he's a golden bull that we just created. And we are in danger of constructing our own non-gods and slapping God's name on it, friends. Now, Walter Brueggemann, he helps us in this because he says, well, at every junction in history, the work of God goes along when the people of God, inspired by God, imagine the world a different place and their imagination cultivates this thing which he calls the prophetic imagination. That is that they learn to cultivate instead of have their imagination captivated. I've got a captive imagination, but now I've got to cultivate a different one. And Brueggemann says, it is a prophetic imagination. It is imagination where God gives you insight, where God removes the veil of mystery from reality and helps you see the things in the realities of the world the way they really are. And that's why a prophet in the Old Testament, a prophet, and the Hebrew is the word nabi, and it means seer, to see. It doesn't mean foreteller. It's a prophet. That's a myth. It doesn't mean fortune teller. Doesn't mean you come out the front and they say, oh, you got back pain? They see. They are primarily seers. And they look behind the realities of the cosmos, seeing them from an inspired point of view that happens to be God's point of view. The prophetic imagination moves along the work of God in history as we take our captivated imagination and we yield it to God and say, God, help me cultivate your mind. Let me see it the way you see it. Let me fill my heart with what is in your heart. Let my hands do what your hands would do. And and we cultivate a different image for the very possibilities behind the universe itself. And of course, no one shows us this better than Jesus. And everything Jesus did was out of a prophetic imagination. And so Jesus saw the world a different way and calls us to see the world the way he saw it. Jesus saw God a different way from his contemporaries, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the black belt religious people, the elite, the the God ones. Jesus saw God different to the way they saw God. And Jesus calls us to change our lens and embrace his prophetic imagination, seeing God the way Jesus sees God. Jesus sees Scripture differently, he read it differently, he interpreted it differently, and he had war with the Pharisees because the Pharisees could be right about the Bible but wrong about God on every score. Think about that. They were doctrinally correct, but they had a captivated imagination which was not prophetic. Jesus saw Scripture differently differently. Jesus saw people differently. He looked at them with a certain lens. He saw them a different way to his contemporaries. So, a woman that everybody else would stone, especially the godly. And Jesus says, Neither do I cast the first stone. Everyone would reject the leper and the outcast and not touch them. They would flee from them. They would cross over on the other side of the room from them, but not Jesus. Jesus will touch them and say, I'm willing. And you have to understand the the, the earth-shattering statement of Jesus when he puts a hand on that leper and says, I am willing, the great I am. Jesus had an imagination that was not captive to the power of the world and the culture that he grew up in. He came from a rich, inherited, prophetic imagination tradition passed on to him by the dynamic of the moving of the Holy Spirit but passed on to him by his mummy Mary who herself shows us in the opening chapter of Luke that she does not have a mind captive to the powers and the principalities of this world and the realities of the Roman government the realities of a teenage mum pregnant single out of wedlock the realities of a woman in a patriarchal culture whose testimony in a court of law was not even considered valid. Her imagination is captured by none of these things. She has a prophetic imagination so she sees and interprets things that are happening not with the lens this world can provide but with a lens that comes from the divine perspective. Now why am I telling you this? Because friends Luke's not telling us that we just think it's interesting. He's process is to tell us this so it gets in us and that it on the one hand opens our eyes and on the other hand gives us a new set of eyes we're invited listen we're invited by God to join a rich tradition of the prophetic imagination so all of Israel didn't know what God was like but Moses had the prophetic imagination so he could see and behave in new ways foreign to the people around him and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, even Daniel's three friends, they, they, they would willingly be cast into a furnace because their imagination said, I can imagine a world where God preserves me in the fire if I worship him and am faithful to him. But everyone in Babylon, including many Israelites, couldn't imagine a faithful God. They could only imagine bowing down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, well, even if he doesn't rescue us, we won't bow. And if we burn, we burn. And then they get thrown into the fire and their life of light and their life of salt gives a different reality that's possible. And all of a sudden, even those around them recognize, isn't there another man in the fire with them? When they came out, the smell of smoke was not on them. They can see reality a different way. And David sees reality a different way when all of Israel would cower in fear from Goliath. David, the skinny youth, the overlooked one, the one no one even remembers is out when you, if you read his biography. He's a ruddy youth, he's described. It means he's red. It's a very funny description of him. Like he's innocent, he's naive, he's sunburnt, he's got red, he's a ranger, he's a ranger like David the Ranger. That's Australian parlance for people with red hair not used pejoratively, mostly. And David's there and all of Israel are carrying, and David has a different imagination. He lives in an imagined world, not an imaginary world, you understand, because our world is all imagined, even our realities are a result of what we imagine and how we imagine, how we image. And David lives in a world where he images, I come against you not with a sword and not with a spear, but I come against you in the name of the God of Israel. His image is different. I'm not coming on my own. Me and my and my God are with me. Everyone else looks at Goliath and says he's too big to fight. And David says, "Man, he is too big to miss." because he has a different image, a different lens, and he gets it. If you read David's Psalms, if you read his biography, David is a life steeped in the worship of Yahweh and a life steeped in the writings of the seers and the prophets. So he sees the world a different way, even in his brokenness and in his frailty and with all of his flaws and his temptations, which there sure was a lot. There is no glossing over that. And he shows us even a frail, fallen, broken person can live out of a different imagination. In fact, David's biography demonstrates for us the tendency we have to oscillate between our two imaginations, the prophetic imagination where God is always doing something, God's always cultivating something and calling us into something new and helping us see reality a different way. Or the old me that is captive and and captive to the empire and the powers of this world that I live under. And it goes well for David when he cultivates his prophetic imagination, but man, when his imagination is on a rooftop in a time when kings go to war and all the soldiers are away and Bathsheba's taking a shower. Mary comes from a tradition of cultivating and seeing with a prophetic imagination. And Luke tells us this because as we see the story of Jesus unfold, we will see Jesus as the ultimate vision for living of God, with a kingdom vision for a new world and a new life and a new land and a new salvation. And we are invited to embrace that view. Mary says, my soul, this is Luke chapter 1, we'll read from verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised, just as he promised our ancestors. If you're a sane person, the longer you listen to me, you're going to question that about me, no doubt if you're a sane person, you are forced to conclude, Mary's response is so weird. She's got this life-altering news, angels appearing to her, non-pregnant elderly relatives suddenly pregnant, visitations, God, and her response is to sing a song of praise. Sing a song of praise that is a patchwork quilt of what's going on. Now, be honest, when you face a challenge... When you face adversity, when your world is turned upside down, oh, what about this one? When it seems like your world's being turned upside down by what God's doing, and you're not getting your way, or God's work in the world just happens to present sacrifice and challenges for you. You know, isn't it true? Like, this is just what I've found. God has been in the universe management business for a long time, and he still refuses to follow my dictates. It's almost like God thinks God knows what God's doing. You know what I'm saying? How many of my brothers and sisters out there just give me a moment of sympathy? Thank you. I can feel your love. It's a weird response to sing a song of praise in the face of what Mary's faced with. But her weird response shows us she's the product of a prophetic imagination. And as we dwell in it for a moment, we don't have long. We are invited. Could you embrace Mary's prophetic imagination? Daniel's and Ezekiel's and Moses's and Jesus's and Paul's and Peter's, could you cultivate a different image of the way that you view reality itself? Remember the Christmas Carol. Do you hear what I hear? Mm-hmm. Do you hear what? I I can't get the soprano note. It'll happen after my next mountain bike accident. <laughs> I, the words of this song actually really move me. Can I read them for you? This could be my moment for auditioning for the musical. If I could just get someone on the keys. No, I'm joking. That's Don't anyone come on the keys. Do you hear what I hear? Said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite, with a tail as big As a kite said, the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? Ringing through the sky, shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? A song, a song high above the trees with a voice as big as the sea. A voice as big as the sea. Said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, do you know what I know? Do you know what I know? In your palace warm, mighty king, do you know what I know? A child, a child shivers in the night. Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold, said the king to people everywhere. Listen to what I say. Pray for peace. People everywhere, listen to what I say. The child, the child sleeping in the night, he will bring us goodness and light he will bring us goodness and light you know those words deeply move me probably because i know what darkness is like what about you and i know what it's like when the infinite god became an infant that grew into a man that gave me a different way of seeing the realities behind the universe itself what about you you know that song was written in 1962 in october by Noel Regney and his wife, Gloria Shane. They were married, and they wrote it as a plea for peace in the midst of, if you know your history, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And all they could do is imagine that a world, instead of us all blowing each other up, could be influenced by a child, a child shivering in the night. And they wrote this song, and this song went on to sell 10 million copies. The irony being that Noel Regney didn't want to release it because he was scared of the commercialization of Christmas. <laughs> it went on to be b- recorded by Mahalia Jackson. Mm hmm. You know her. Yeah. It went on to be recorded by Johnny Cash. Yeah. And it went on to be sung by Whitney Houston. And, ah, oh, just so it's always just below the surface with Whitney. An amazing song. It's a song that I think if you get it. You can put yourself in Mary's shoes. If Mary could speak to us in her song, what she's saying to us is she's saying, do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Do you know what I see? She's singing, man. She's praising God. She's rejoicing because she knows something. And, And Luke is asking us, can we embrace and cultivate a prophetic imagination so that we would know what she knew, so that we could see what she saw, so that we could hear what she heard? We're invited to this prophetic imagination. Her response, Mary's response, Mary's song is a song that is fueled by scripture. She sings. That's one of the reasons, actually, why in the modern church we sing in corporate worship. Did you know that? Did you ever think if you were like an alien archaeologist from Mars and you came and visited planet Earth and surveyed all of the odd groups of people that that are weird, wouldn't it seem weird coming to a church where we do karaoke but with our eyes closed and our arms raised? It's so, like, and, and, and sing. We had a visit to our church recently, and our church was singing that song, Jaira. And they were like, Who, who is Jaira? This thing sounds like a good guy, <laughs> unschooled in faith, which means we've got to be careful about how we communicate. Hey, Mary was fueled in scripture, and she begins a tradition of singing in praise and worship, faith filled songs scripture-filled songs interpreting our circumstance in scripture-framed ways Psalm 96 says and I think Mary obeys it in this moment so sing to the Lord a new song and that's what Mary does she's a person fueled by scripture and she sings a new song a song inspired by the prophetic imagination she's grown up in and she makes it novel for her day and her age. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day by day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord God made the heavens. Hey, Okay, just stop for a sec. Do you realize what he's saying? The idols, the gods of the nations are idols. An idol is a manufactured thing. It got made by someone. And and the psalmist is saying, the gods of the nations are idols. They were manufactured. But God, he made everything. No one made him. I, I thought that was exciting, guys. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, oh you families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering to him. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. See, this isn't being written out of a prophetic imagination. A Jewish psalmist can't imagine a world where all of the nations would worship Yahweh, only a world where all of the Israelites would worship Yahweh. And the prophetic imagination says God is calling all people, not one nation. He is calling all nations to come and tremble before him, who some of us on planet earth, just the godly, tremble before him. All the earth. It's a global vision. It includes every family. It includes every tribe. It includes every tongue. The prophetic imagination says in a world that says God would exclude them and them and them and him and her and them. But the prophetic imagination says God wants everybody in. It's a different way of seeing. It's an innovative way because even the early Israelites, they didn't have this imagination. And it regularly comes up in the Psalms and the prophets that he will take his light to the ends of the earth and all nations will stream in before him. having a chat with someone yesterday about um, planning our church in Darwin. You see, it's born out of a prophetic imagination. Even Darwin needs Jesus. About sending James and Mez to Timor to establish our mission hub. Why? It's a prophetic imagination. Which is really good because we've got to look at our church budget with a prophetic imagination. (laughs) And James and Mez have to look at their new dwelling with a prophetic imagination. I see a shanty, but God sees a palace, Mez. You see malaria, I see tremble before him all of the earth. (laughs) Prophetic imagination. He says, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. The Lord will judge the peoples with equity. Sorry, let's go to verse 10 back. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Not just say amongst Israel the Lord reigns. Not just the tribe of Judah the Lord, say among the nations the Lord reigns. The world is established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all of the trees of the forest sing for joy. See, the prophetic imagination looks at nature itself and says, you see a tree, I see a worshipper with its arms stretched high, swaying in the breeze, bringing glory to God. Verse 13, let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and he will judge the people in his faithfulness. Listen to those curious words again. Let all creation rejoice for he comes. He comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. Why would the world rejoice about being judged? Come on. You engage your imagination for a second. When I say the word judge, what do you think of? Most of the time, because we live in a culture and our imaginations are captivated by the culture we live in, so most of us will be thinking about someone in a black robe with a white wig behind a timber panel and a gavel. Some of us are thinking, Judge Judy. because our imagination is not a prophetic one. If our imagination was a prophetic one, when we see the word judge, the Hebrew word shafat, judgment, the Hebrew word mishafat, when we see those words, we wouldn't be thinking of Judge Judy, but that, that's a Western concept, Western coming into a courtroom, being tried for your crimes. And you even hear the gospel preached this way. God's going to judge you, but Jesus came, and God was going to throw you into jail with one whack of his hammer, but Jesus came and took the punishment for you. And it's close I don't have time today to go into all of the poor nuances of that description, only to say this, that all through scriptures, the word judge and the idea of judgment is used not with a Western imagination of a a judge in a courtroom, but with a prophetic imagination from the Hebrew scriptures. And the word judge, shafat, and the word judgment, mishafat. It means something that makes the earth rejoice when it happens. Well, what's that? Well, if you have a mind, if you have the prophetic imagination... And you turn back into the centuries of the Hebrew scriptures and there's a whole book on the very same subject. It's called the Book of Judges, the Shafatim. In Hebrew, you put an I-M on the end of it and it's multiples Judges, Shafatim. And in the Book of Judges, you can study it. In any commentary you'll get, go do a first year Bible college or, or a PhD, you'll get the same information. In the book of Judges, there's a cycle. And the cycle is the people of Israel forget God. They're away from God. They're not living under God's covenant. And therefore, God withdraws his hand of protection because you can't have God's hand without seeking his face. But when you seek God's face, you get his hand. And and, And God's hand is back because the people have moved away from God. And in their moving away from God, now they are open to being pillaged and oppressed by all of the powers that surround them. They are captivated. They are laid into slavery. This is in every cycle of the Judges cycle of the book of Judges. And the people's teeth groan and their hearts groan and they begin to cry out. And God hears their cry. And he raises up a deliverer. But the translation that says deliverer in the book of Judges is never actually deliverer. It's always a judge. Samson is a judge, Deborah is a judge she has partnership with Jael who like nails her task, she, there, there's Ehud and there's Shamgar and there's these figures in the book of Judges who are raised up when the nation is in its darkness, when the, when the nation is at its worst, when, when it looks hopeless and they're surrounded and oppressed by enemies, when Gideon came on the scene he, he was hiding in a bathtub and God came and revealed himself to Gideon so I'm going to raise you up and you're going to be a judge to the nations and what does a judge do in the book of Judges? He's And put on his coat and hold a courtroom and (laughs) he blows the trumpet and he rallies the people and he leads them in a mighty deliverance over the. Samson did it single handed. Gideon did it with three people that had been, 300 people that had been whittled down. The idea that is that there's a, the, the God raises up a deliverer in the cycle when we're at our worst, when we're in our darkest, when we're so far away, when our hearts are breaking and we are groaning under the weight of oppression, God raises up a deliverer and that deliverer is called a shafat, a judge. Yeah. Well, you better believe if you have a prophetic imagination that all of those judges point forward to the one who's coming. His name is Jesus. And that's why the psalmist can say, tremble before him all the earth, but rejoice. He comes to judge the earth. Yea, a deliverer is coming. Someone's coming to bring us freedom. I don't know about you, but that's exciting for planet Earth. But see, most of us, we don't have a prophetic imagination. We have a cultural imagination that we're captive to. We've got to learn to cultivate a different view. When you hear of the judgment of God, I bet you've, unless you've studied the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew worldview, but I know plenty of people that have studied it and stopped at that bit without internalizing it. There's a whole book on judge and judging. And we still get it wrong. What we think it means when God comes to judge the earth. And Mary understands what it means because she says he's coming. This is the deliverer. He's coming to overturn everything. He's coming to set us free from oppression. He's coming to bring down the mighty off their thrones. He's coming to exalt the humble. He's coming to, to, to fill the poor and the hungry with good things. And those proud, those haughty, those oppressors, they've been scattered and sent away empty. The chest set is being flung up in the air. And a new future for planet Earth is born in Mary's prophetic imagination. She sees all of the themes of the Hebrew Bible. Her first line is soaked in scripture. Every line she says is soaked in scripture. And so here are my three points, and then I'm going to wrap up. This is the first one how to cultivate a prophetic imagination. The team are going to put it up on the screen. Have a mind soaked in the promises of God have a mind soaked in the promises of God. I know we think we do that sometimes, but we don't have a mind soaked in the promises of God. We have a mind where the prom- one or two of the promises of God are in it. Mary's mind is soaked in the promises of God, therefore her mouth is filled with the promises of God. When our mind is soaked in God's word, our speech is filled with God's word. And she does it, she cultivates a prophetic imagination by having a Bible lens. And she patchworks together a scriptural song in response to what God is doing. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. That's a quote. And it's a quote you see all through scripture. But it has a nuance and why Mary raises it in this moment is incredibly nuanced you see this scripture in Exodus chapter 20. The team are going to put it up on the screen. And it goes something along the lines of this. You know, the Ten Commandments are there and and you're being given um, the the rules and the regulations. And and the team are going to put up, "...you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below." You shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Listen to that. Punishing the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And Mary's quoting scripture, but see, the scripture has a twist to it. I show love to the generations of those who fear me, but I visit calamity on the children of those who don't fear me. It's not just Exodus that says this. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The team going to put it up on the screen. It's the same thing. If you follow the Torah, you'll be blessed. If you do what God wants, he'll be kind to you. He'll be faithful to you. He'll keep covenant. If you follow his commandments, he will be faithful to you, to your children's children. But if you don't follow his commandments, you're going to suffer and your children are going to suffer. Mary's prophetic imagination does something amazing. That you see all the way through Scripture, because Mary is celebrating a child whose reign will know no end. You know, that Scripture got innovated in Ezekiel. In chapter 18, Ezekiel changes the deal. Ezekiel, a prophet. Ezekiel, inspired by God. Ezekiel, moving out of a prophetic imagination, he brings a new revelation, something the people of Israel had never heard before, and this is what it says. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteous of the righteousness will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. There's a new deal. Uh, Ezekiel, with his prophetic imagination, says, it used to be that God would visit calamity on your children if you sinned. But then Ezekiel, with his prophetic imagination, says, I'm singing a new song. God's doing something new. He's innovating theologically. It's no longer your children that will suffer for your sins. You're accountable for yourself. They're accountable for themselves. If you don't realize that's a shift, and that's where you have to understand the nature of the prophetic imagination, is that God is always moving in history and he is moving things along and he's redeeming histories and he's redeeming stories and he's changing the deal in Ezekiel. And then Jeremiah comes along and Jeremiah blows our mind. Jeremiah, everybody's prophesying over Israel. And in Jeremiah, everybody's prophesying calamity. And everybody's saying your children and your children's children, and your children's children, you're all going into captivity, and they, they do go. But Jeremiah speaks these profound words, and I've found that most Christians don't even know them. And they represent one of the most pivotal promises of God in scripture that Mary herself is responding to out of a prophetic imagination. Verse 36 of Jeremiah You are saying about this city by the sword. And famine and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, you're saying one thing, but have a listen to what God says. Verse 37, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then listen to this. I will give them a singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and they all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. You, this is the only place in Scripture you get a promise that God makes with all his heart and soul. You say they're under judgment, he says. I say I'm bringing them back. You say it's destruction. I say restoration. And look, This is the prophetic imagination that Mary celebrates. This is why she celebrates. He brings mercy from generation to generation because she knows that the tide of God's work is moving on. God is doing something new. God is bringing something new and it's not doom and gloom and destruction. It is restoration and blessing and life. And listen, why? Because in the earlier parts of the Torah, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, man, if you you did something wrong, then you didn't get God's favour. You didn't get God's blessing. You had to follow the rules. You had to follow the covenant otherwise it's on you and then it's on your children's children and Ezekiel says no it's just on you Jeremiah says it's not on you it's in you and God moving Jeremiah's prophetic imagination says you can't do it family you can't you can't live a perfect life you cannot live a sinless existence you can't please God You can't keep covenant. You can't follow the rules. You can barely be good. He says, so I will do it. The covenant was about God will bless you if you do the right thing. The prophetic imagination says God's got a new one, and this one is an everlasting covenant. That's the thing Mary celebrates. And this everlasting covenant is not about God will give you favor if you do the right things. Here it is. It's about God saying, I will inspire you, and you will follow me. This is no longer what you do. This is what God has done in you. The prophetic imagination calls us to the newness that understands that favor with God and walking in the life of God and walking with God's blessing and embracing the work of Jesus is not about what I do. It is about embracing what God can do in me. That's what the word inspired means. The divine breath in the human person. God says, I will breathe into you. Then you'll follow me. Mary's celebrating. he He's doing it. God's doing it. God is bringing His mercy from generation to generation. His covenant loving kindness, the everlasting promise to Jeremiah is here. God is finally breathing into us. He is restoring us. I will rejoice in doing them good, God says. And I'll plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. prophetic imagination, soaked in the promises of Scripture so Mary can celebrate the judgment of God, knowing God is a great deliverer. She can celebrate God's mercy from generation to generation because she knows it's now that He will implant His Spirit in our hearts and cause us to become followers of His. You want to cultivate a prophetic imagination? Soak your mind in the promises of God. Here's the second one. How to cultivate a prophetic imagination. Don't give in to despair. You know Mary's situation. But she doesn't give in to despair. She sings a song of praise. Sometimes the most radical thing we can do in the face of our suffering and our trials is to stand and sing a song of praise. Do it with the people of God. Do it on your own. A thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices. Here's the third one, how to cultivate a prophetic imagination, embrace kingdom humility. All the way through the scriptures, you see this dynamic of, will I be trusting in my own arm, in my own strength, in my own power, in my own capacity to do it? Will I trust in me? Will I be a self-governed, autonomous human being? And all the way through the prophets, the prophetic imagination, all the way through the scripture says that is pride, that is arrogance, learning to live a life that is detached from God. That's proud, pride, proud arrogance. That's what gets scattered in Mary's song. And something else happens. He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things. And the prophetic imagination looks at the lens of the world and says, I trust not in the strength of princes, but my trust is in the Lord prophetic imagination says I lean not on my own understanding but in all my ways the prophetic imagination says whether I think I'm amazing I bow down before the king of heaven and earth whether I whether I my self-esteem is through the roof I pour myself out before the king of heaven and earth and now I trust not in riches I trust not in my ability to fill the law. I trust not in my ability to follow behaviors and do the right thing. The prophetic imagination says, I humble myself under God's mighty hand and He will lift me up. Now I trust in Him and I pour my life out to Him. Now, relationally, Paul, Paul took it so far that in Philippians 2, he gives the quintessential Christian relationship passage and says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or ba- vain conceit, but have the mind which was in Jesus in you. Jesus, the prophetic imagination, what does He do? Well, He considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself, poured Himself out and was found in the form of a servant. See the prophetic imagination. I don't rule, I don't dominate. I'm not out here waging a war with this world. I, I'm, I'm waging love waging peace. And you know what it looks like? It looks like touching lepers no one would touch and desisting from stone throwing when everyone else is throwing rocks. Oh man, our world has a problem in the church, friends, because too many of us imagine that to embody the prophetic imagination means I'm sitting on a street corner railing against everybody. But that's because the tide of prophetic imagination has moved through history and and you have to remember to, to read Ezekiel and you have to remember to read Jeremiah. Then you have to remember to read Luke and Mark and Matthew and John and Jesus and Paul and Peter. The prophetic imagination is not where we are known for everything we stand against. It is we are known for what we will kneel for. We will stoop and serve. Jesus, it says, he knew the authority that God had given him, and he knew where he was going, John says. So then in the middle of the feast, he got up and he took off his outer garments and he put on the towel of a servant. And he took up the bucket and he washed their feet. This is the prophetic imagination that says to a world, hey, let's join lives together. Let's join lives together. Let's feast together. Come into God's feast kingdom and dine with us. Let's join. Well, wash your feet before you come in. Wipe your, clean yourself up before you come in. It's Jesus you're eating with. Don't you walk any muck in for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, clean up before you feast with me. The prophetic imagination says, feast with me. Because in the middle of that feast, Jesus is going to wash you right up, man. That's why the gospel is not change and God will love you. It is, come on, let God love you. That'll change your friend. And we've got to be people who are motivated and their prophetic imagination burning in our spirit that we can take the life-giving love of God to a dying world, friends. Can I tell you something? I don't want to pastor a church where we're not passionate about the broken. I don't want to pastor a church where only the good can come in. I don't want to pastor a church where you're not welcome if you're vulnerable. I don't want to pastor a church where we're all looking at each other, making sure everybody measures up. I want to pastor a church where we're taking up the towel of servanthood and saying, hey, come on in. Let's get cleaned up. Let's get the life of Jesus Come on, will you bow your heads all over this room? I want to finish by praying for you. You've been amazing today. Thank you. Mary's prophetic imagination, seeing what God is doing, seeing now is the time, seeing the promises are fulfilled, anticipating the work of Jesus, the whole arc of Scripture coming into being, God's reality bleeding into human lived experience. scatters the proud but he exalts the humble. Father I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today and I pray if they can't understand a word I said or remember one thing I said I pray they would be impacted by your invitation by your great invitation to see the world a different way, to see God a different way, to see Scripture a different way, and see people a different way, a way that comes from your deep capacity to see. Lord, make us seers. Let us stand in the tradition of Mary and celebrate what you've done. Let us have minds soaked in Scripture, mouths filled with Scripture, people who refuse to give in to the despair in the world around us, people of humility who can serve you in the Jesus tradition. Lord, move our hearts. Move our hearts. Use us. Let us be moved and inspired by your gracious invitation. I pray for my friends in this room, God. I pray you said in your word, I will inspire them and then they will walk in my ways. I pray for a room today of people who will leave this place inspired, breathed into by God, living into kingdom reality, living into everything you have for them. And Lord, even the frailties of my own ability to communicate this message today, I pray you would give my friends in this room a prophetic imagination, that you would speak to them and give them their own image of the way the world could be in your kingdom in Jesus mighty mighty name we pray and everyone said amen